1: Tonight's author, I know for most of you, needs no introduction. Um, I'm just going to remind and impress you with his stats, uh, which always impress me. He's the author of 13 novels, nine collections of short stories. He is published all the time in the most esteemed of literary publications, including Harper's, The New Yorker, McSweeney's, The Paris Review. He's received countless literary awards, including the Penn Faulkner, Award um, for uh, a prize for the best novel of 1988 uh, with his novel World's End. Um, I think I just swallowed a fly. (laughs) A very tiny one, so it's okay. (laughs) Um, Anyway, he's a personal favorite of mine and really this entire bookstores, Um, and we're here tonight to celebrate the paperback release of his newest book, When the Killing's Done. Uh, And really the best thing I can say about this novel is that it meets the T.C. Boyle standard. Um, So please help me give a warm welcome to T.C. Boyle.
2: So, I should point out that I am also a doctor and I specialize in flyectomies, so no sweat tonight. And thank you for turning out on such a cold, rainy night. wait a minute. I'm supposed to say that in Portland, I guess. But what the hell? You know? We'll be brushing our teeth with sand by the end of the summer, by the way, because our water is over. So. Here I am to entertain you, I, I met earlier a very handsome gentleman and, uh, uh, with brilliant literary taste sitting back there and he said, well, you know, I usually see you in a larger venue with a bigger crowd, this is so intimate tonight, what are you doing here? Well I want to support this bookstore, I love it, I love what they do, I love the people here. I also have to fess up that um, my daughter worked here for five years <laughs> until circumstances drove her out of her digs in Los Feliz. Roommate complications, you know how that is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, it is such a nice intimate crowd. I am going to do something special tonight. Yes, I am on the paperback tour for When the Killing's Done, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But then I want to read you a new story tonight that's only been heard by my wife and the dog, both of whom fell asleep in the middle by the way, and, and a crowd in San Francisco the other night which kicked off this paperback tour and they were rabid with joy. So we'll see where, where you fall tonight. Um, uh, so, uh, when the killing's done. You know, I, um, I remember it vaguely. Last year, last February, was the hardcover tour for this and I had a, a glimmer about this book then. Of course, I had delivered it 18 months before and was well into the next one. Now, now, I barely remember. I know it has a red cover, you know, and I know my mother loved it. <laughs> no, no, I remember it. I remember it very well. God, I had to read it 300 times. So I will tell you a little bit about this and then we will move on to the great joy of the evening. Um, I made my escape from LA 19 years ago Uh, and went to Santa Barbara, where I've lived ever since. And uh, I still teach at USC one day a week, and I always take the coast highway because I just can't stand all those idiots out there on their cell phones who live only to destroy my life and possibly kill me because of inattention. So I always take the coast highway where at least I can look at the ocean. And all these years, I kept looking at the Channel Islands, wondering what goes on out there. Now I know. Um, The incidents that I talk about in this book happened within the last decade, mainly on Anacapa and Santa Cruz islands, and it has to do with ecological restoration and the big fight over that, as reported in the LA Times, but more specifically in the Ventura paper and the Santa Barbara news press. I still have a clipping on my refrigerator, kind of yellow right now, but it says this, it's a headline of the newspaper, it says, Eagles arrive as pigs are killed. (laughs) <laughs> How could I resist that? But what this is referring to is what I dramatized in this novel, um, actual events. So it starts on Anacapa. First part of the book takes place on Anacapa Island. Um, on Anacapa, oh around 2001 the Park Service decided we must bomb this with broader fecum that is rat poison in order to kill the rats that got there from the wreck of the Winfield Scott steamer in 1853, everybody survived, but the rats swam ashore. They've been living there ever since. The problem is the shorebirds there nest on the ground. They didn't have any predators, and so the rats have been decimating them all these years. And the park service decided finally, all right, it's time to get rid of the rats. So they didn't want to harm the, the native mice. They collected some of those and you know put them in cages, and then they bombed it for two days. And by the way, it took care of the problem. Um, meanwhile. Um, an activist, a local activist, whom I don't know, I have never met him, um, until recently that is, um, uh, as reported in the newspaper, went out there with a the confederate. And they had big backpacks full of vitamin K, which is the antidote to the rat poison, which is an anticoagulant, and the vitamin K ha- helps the coagulate blood. So they threw out all of this rat poison, uh, uh, vitamin K, to uh, in the hope that the rat would eat it, all the rats would eat it, and the, the rats would be fine. Well, they were busted by the Park Service and arrested for two crimes. One um... interfering with a park service operation and two feeding wildlife without a permit in a national park <laughs> alright now how can you resist the story like this so I, I invented a character his name is Dave LaJoy and he takes the place of this individual um, he is an unlikable guy he's one of these uh, men he's in his forties he's made some money in his uh... he runs a stereo kind of uh... enterprise where you know for all the schmucks like me, he'll go to your house and, and, and put it in. Um wears his hair in dreadlocks, he, he loves uh, folk music, uh, he's an eco guy, he does, he's a vegetarian, but um, he's also incredibly obnoxious in every way. He's particularly incensed about bums. He wants to eliminate all the bums. Yet at the same time, he is the guy who goes out to save the rats. And in my telling he is opposed to a, a young biologist who feels just as he does about practically everything except one thing. She's very practical practical about the invasive species and how they should be eliminated in order to allow the original species to exist. So the second part takes place on Santa Cruz Island and it's a collision between these two fighting over the removal of the pigs which I'm sure you've all read about. Um, and I will tell you that in brief and then we will move on. So. Here's the story that I am dramatizing. Um, in 1940, um, we had the Montrose Chemical Company here in LA, during the war, dumped DDT into Santa Monica Bay. And as you know, DDT works itself up the food chain, and it especially is tough on birds, You your Red Silent Spring I'm sure. Um, so it killed off all the native bald eagles, which had colonized all of these Channel Islands. Um, in their absence, In moved golden eagles. Now, bald eagles are paciferous. They mainly eat fish. Uh, Golden eagles uh, prey on land animals, for the most part. In the absence of the balds, who are tougher, by the way, and more territorial, in moved the goldens. All right, great. You know, we love them. There they are. Meanwhile, once the Park Service and Nature Conservancy had fully taken over Santa Cruz Island, which is four times bigger than Manhattan, by the way, and nobody lives there, um, uh, the sheep were removed. And as you know, sheep eat everything right to the ground. Once the sheep were removed, the invasive fennel, how'd the fennel get there? You have it in your sausage, right? Well, the sheep herders brought it and had a little garden, and now the fennel, it it, it has thickets that could fill this room 20 feet high, because there were no sheep to chew it down. Well, all right. But in the meanwhile, what were the golden eagles eating? Well, they were eating delicious piglets. How could you refuse them? I mean wonderful piglets. But meanwhile now there was a big thicket and the piglets hid in the thicket. So what do they eat? This was only discovered late in the game. The Channel Islands fox. Um, This is unique to the system. It exhibits dwarfism. Uh, It's only four pounds. That is the size of a house cat, but of course not your house cats, which are bloated and overfed, you know, and (laughs) spoiled. And so the park service discovered this late in the game. There were 1,500 foxes there, and they were down to 300 and going fast. Um, Lotus Vermeer who is uh, head of the Nature Conservancy there, showed me on her computer a picture of a golden eagle chick. We love this thing, by the way it's this big with with claws like this, Um, and around it its nest are the remains of twenty of these little foxes, one of which was wearing a radio collar, which is how they discovered the problem. Okay, so in short, now the pigs had to be removed. Not simply because of this, but because they interfere with the native vegetation. They dig it up and so on and then weeds come in and etc. They hired um, a group from New Zealand that specializes in removing invasive species from islands at the cost of $7 million to come in and shoot 5,500 pigs and leave them to rot. The pigs could not be removed because they had been there for 150 years. They had been feral pigs and they might bring back a disease and infect our hog industry, God forbid. So they had to be shot and left there to rot. And the golden eagles had to be captured, no easy thing, and taken to the Sierras where they are now. And here's my lovely wife sitting in the front row. She and I were there with the biologist to see the first two bold eagle chicks ever born there since 1940 released into the wild. And so. In short, it's a great joy, and it worked. The foxes are doing great, the, the bald eagles are back, and there is a lesson here. And the lesson, of course, I will leave to you to, uh, to think about once you read the book, but it is in short, don't mess with mother nature. All right, so that said, and I recommend the book highly. Again, my mother loved it. Um, I'm not going to read to you from that book. I'm going to read you a short story um, that appeared in The New Yorker about a month ago. Brand new story because in The Fall is the next novel, San Miguel, set on the farthest out of the Channel Islands, and it's not about the ecology except peripherally. It's an, it's an historical story about that. Then the following fall is volume two of T.C. Boyle stories, the collected stories, and I'm working on that second volume now and this is the first of the stories. Um, Again, uh, uh, you're only the second audience to hear it and I will just give you a few words to orient you as you come into this. First of all, you really, really have to suspend disbelief because I am going to be the narrator of this story and you, uh, while you're looking at me, you have to imagine me seven inches taller and 260 pounds heavier. Okay, I know that stuff, but you know you've got to do that. This place takes place in an, uh, this story takes place in an unnamed South American country in the 1930s. It has to do, as you will see let's see, can I tell you this? Well, it has to do with sex. And it is a very, very sexy story, so um, I hope it's not going to frighten anybody too much, because, you know, it's a normal, natural human activity, sex that is. And that's what this story's about. But in a twisted, twisted way, as you will see. Alright, so here I am. I'm pretty big. And the story is called Los Gigantes. At first, they kept us in cages like zoo animals, but that was too depressing. After a while, we began to lose interest in what we'd been brought there to do. We didn't think about it. Well, not much, anyway. We were just depressed, that was all, and when they brought the women to us, it was inevitable that we went about the business in a half-hearted way. In my case, in any case, it was soon over, and then it was time for a meal, another meal. They fed us well, I'll say that for them. No expense was spared. And the food was good, the best I'd ever tasted, prepared for us by a man who was rumored to have been first assistant to the pastry chef at the presidential palace before he was replaced by a Frenchman who didn't speak a word of Spanish. Originally, we were 10, but one of our number was suspect and soon rooted out. It happened that a woman refused to go with him. And when Corporal Carrera, who held the keys, wanted to know why, she said, just look at him. And he did, we all did. This was during the first week when we really hadn't had a chance to get to know one another yet, and no one had given the man much thought. Why would we? We were being fed. We had women. Life was good. Anyway, once this woman had spoken up, we all began to scrutinize him and saw what she meant. He was damaged goods. He was tall enough, three or four inches taller than me, in fact, and thick in the limbs, but his face was like an anvil and his eyes couldn't seem to focus. And when he talked, it was in disconnected monosyllables that seemed to dredge themselves up out of some deep fissure in his digestive tract. The man in the cage beside mine whispered, pituitary freak. And in that instant, I saw what I'd missed. Yes, damaged goods. No sense in wasting the stipend, the ex-assistant pastry chef's culinary concoctions, and all those prescribed women on him. I felt a sense of outrage that was as much about my own humiliation as anything else. Whoever had chosen him had chosen me too, and what did that say about me? Even worse, for the first time in my life I had to contend with the fact that I wasn't the biggest man around. At six feet ten inches and four hundred and twenty-odd pounds, I wasn't far off. But there were two men heavier in addition to the pituitary case, freak or not, he'd still look down at me. All my life, I'd been the one looking down on the world, the biggest boy, and then the biggest man not only in my own bustling port city, but in the entire province. I was strong, too. At the Fiesta de Primavera, I once lifted two sheep above my head, one in each hand. And for a prank when I was in my teens, I hauled the mayor's shining black Duesenberg coop up the steps of the Ministry of Justice and left it there at the feet of the gilded statue of the President. By the time I turned 20, I was earning a good wage cranking the capstan that lifted the wooden drawbridge in the center of town so that the high-masted fishing vessels could pass beneath it. And if that seems unremarkable, just consider that formerly three mules had been required to do the job, mules that were now free to pull plows throughout the fields of maize that ring the city, while the mule Skinner himself was able to retire on a small pension and move into the house his mother had left him at the place where the river runs brown into the moss green sea. People would come out to watch me work. Families with picnic baskets, nubile women, strong men, grandmothers, sailors. My legend grew. Of course, to be a legend, to attain that status, is to court attention. That was how they found me, and truly, I wish they never had. Within the month, the first rumors of discontent began to circulate among us. If in the beginning it had seemed as if we'd arrived in paradise, our days given over to leisure and nothing expected of us but the essentials, the routine began to wear on us. We were free to roam the compound by day, and we had books and a radio, and we played games of cards and dice, that sort of thing. But we were locked in at night. And the cages, though they were roomy enough, and each equipped with a toilet, desk, couch, and reading lamp, in addition to our gargantuan steel-framed bed, were an oppression of the spirit. The man I was to become closest to, Fruto Lacayo, a former circus fat man who stood seven inches shorter but outweighed me by some 40 pounds, was the first to voice his complaints. We were in the courtyard one afternoon, smoking, chatting, getting our bearings in this place that was not, despite appearances, a former zoo, but in fact a camp where the regime had kept dissidents in a time before dissidents had been so radically discouraged as to eliminate it altogether. Fruto had been pacing along the path that traced the outer walls on the beneficent gaze of the guard in the tower. who wasn't a guard at all, we were told, but rather a facilitator. When he came directly across the courtyard to where I was sitting in the shade with the latest issue of Ombré, examining the photographs of the slim-ankled women who stared out from its pages with looks of air-brushed longing. Jesus Christ, he said, gasping for breath. I feel like my joints about to fall off. I gave him a wary smile. He was a fat man, I was a giant, and if you don't see the distinction, then you have no access to my soul and no appreciation either. I shrugged. Better than working, isn't it? There was a sheen of sweat on his jowls. It was winter then, thank the Lord and the Blessed Virgin, but still, the humidity was high and the afternoon temperatures were in the eighties and even nineties, so that we were always uncomfortable, especially where our parts chafed. I'm not so sure, he said, it's these cages. We're not animals. No, I said, we're not. Do you know what the president did before he joined the army, professionally I mean? I didn't. He'd been president before I was born and I expected he'd be president still when I moved on to the next world. Fruto winked, as if he were letting me in on a great secret. You don't? You really don't? I shook my head. Well, let me tell you. Let me awaken you. He was a cattle breeder. The initial breakout wasn't a serious attempt. It was perfunctory at best. But at least it made a statement. At least it was a beginning. Early one night, after we'd lain with the evening's women and were gathered round the radio in the courtyard, half listening to the tail end of one of the president's speeches, rumba music. That was what we wanted, and rumba ciudad was due to come on at 8. Fruto heaved himself up from his chair, and addressing us all, growled, I don't know about you, but I've had it. I'm going home tonight, soon as it's dark. There was a flutter of astonished voices. You can't be serious. Have you gone mad? Leave here? Melchior Arce, a former stevedore who was nearly twice as wide across the shoulders as me, though his head was disproportionately small and his left hand had been mangled in an accident so it looked like a crushed tarantula dangling from his shirt sleeve, gave a whistle of surprise. The only way they'll get me out of here, he said, is in a coffin. He paused to bite off the end of his cigar and spit it in the dirt. What's wrong with you, fat man? You a Do You want to know the truth? Pruto went on, ignoring the insult. I don't like big women. Never have. I like them petite, the way women should be. If I want to see fat, I can just look in the mirror. If I'd been feeling the starings of my own discontent, now I went rigid with longing. All I could see was the face of Rosa, my Rosita, the girl I'd left behind when I'd signed the agreement and come all the way across the country to be cooped up here in this stifling compound with its jungle reek and chicken wire cages that showed us for what we really were. Rosa was petite by any measure, a hundred pounds, if that, and an inch short of five feet. I, too, had always been attracted to the sleek and unencumbered, to the girls who looked more like children than women. And why was that? Because opposites attract, of course they do, otherwise we'd all be pygmies or giants instead of something proportional, something in between. I'd asked her to wait for me. I'll be going six months, I said, a year at most, and we'll save the stipend, every penny of it, so we can be married when I come back. She asked what the government wanted of me, pressed me over and over, but I couldn't tell her. Secret work, I'd said. And she looked up at me out of her saucer eyes, beseeching, wanting more, the truth. Top secret, I said, for the military. But now, as soon as Fruto spoke the words, I knew I was going with him. We gathered a few things, sliced meat, bread, chocolate bars left over from dinner, and waited till lights out at ten when the nocturnal clamor of the jungle rose to a crescendo and our fellow Gigantes, exhausted from their venereal labors, turned over in their massive beds and began to snore. Then we made our way across the courtyard to the main gate, which was secured by a padlock chain doubled over on itself. The guard was asleep. Nothing moved but for a solitary rat silhouetted against the faint glow of the village that lay three miles to the west of us. I took hold of the chain in the grip of my two hands and snapped it without even trying. It was nothing, a child's toy, a poor, weak thing designed to forestall ordinary men. And then I rolled back the gate on its lubricated rail, and in the next moment, we were outside in the darkness. The problem was fruto. We hadn't gone 500 yards down the dirt lane that would take us to the village, where there were taxis, buses, even a rail line that would give us access to the whole of the country, to freedom, to the slim and beautiful, to Rosita. When he sat ponderously on a wet stump, overgrown with black twisted vines, and wheezing heavily croaked, I can't go on. Can't go on? What are you talking about? We just left the place. I crushed mosquitoes against the back of my neck. Something flapped across the darkened road. Give me a minute. Let me catch my breath. I can barely make out the shape of him there in the dense clot of shadows. I heard him slapping his own host of mosquitoes. You don't have one of those sandwiches handy, do you? He He asked. Look, I said, if we expect to get out of this, to go home, you do want to go home, don't you? We'll need to get to the village and purchase a bus ticket or hire a taxi and be gone before they bring in the morning's women. Go on without me, he said. The air seemed to tear through his lungs. I'll follow you after I've had a bit of rest and a sandwich. Let's split up the provisions now just in case. In case of what? In case we don't meet up again. So I left him there. It was no less than he deserved. The worst that would happen was that they would take him back to his cage, to food and leisure and the manipulation of the flesh. For my part, I made it as far as the village, where I found myself distracted by the lights of a cantina. I had to duck to get through the door. Everyone stared. I should say, in my own defense, that I'm not one of these men who drink themselves senseless. But they didn't allow us liquor in the compound, for fear it would affect our performance, I suppose. And the taste of it, after more than a month without, made me want another taste, and another after that. I slept somewhere, I don't remember where. And in the morning, when they came for me, I went along with them as docilely as one of the sheep I'd lifted above my head as if they were no more than woolly clouds trailing across a serene blue sky. The following afternoon, after we'd eaten our lunch and ministered to the women who joined us each day at siesta time, Fruto and I were summoned to the military barracks at the far side of the village. A truck painted in camouflage colors took us through town and into another compound, this one made of whitewashed brick with a three-story building at the center of it. Corporal Carrera led us up the stairs and into a grand office on the second floor that was presided over by a monumental oil portrait of the president and a dozen limp flags representing each of the country's provinces. There was a bank of windows spilling light. Beneath them stood a mahogany desk, very grand in size, though to us it was like the sort of thing children make use of in elementary school, and seated at the desk in full military uniform replete with epaulets and layered decorations was a man we recognized as Colonel Lasaro Apunto, Director of Educational and Agricultural Resources for the Western Region. There were no seats for us, or no seats large enough, and so we were made to stand. A long moment elapsed. Troppo Carrera stationed at the door, the colonel gazing up at us with a look caught halfway between irascibility and awe. Finally, he spoke. So, I am given to understand that you two have been abrogating your patriotic duties. Is that correct? I said, yes, that is correct. You have complaints? Legitimate complaints? This started Fruto going in the way that a molded steel crank in the hands of the president's chauffeur might fire up a balky engine. We are not animals, he said. And we want our privacy. We can't be expected to be be intimate in a chicken wire cage where anyone can see for himself how we go about our business, and the heat is intolerable, and the insects, and... And the food, the colonel asked, cutting him off. Is that not of the highest order, rich in protein, flavorful? And your stipends, the money we send on each week to your families, your loved ones whose home addresses we scrupulously maintain, aren't they sufficient? And what of work? It's not as if we're asking you to work. The food is excellent, I said, stifling the impulse to append Your Excellency to the assessment. Good, the colonel sighed, leaning back in his chair. Very good. He was a little man with moustaches, but then they were all little men. Everyone in the military, everyone on the street, even the president himself. For a moment there, I thought you were going to renege on your contract with the government, but here I see the whole matter is nothing really, just a question of adjustments. You want stucco walls built over the chicken wire? Fine, it will not be a problem. In fact, he scrawled something on a pad. We'll see to it immediately. Tile floors, Fruto put in, for the sake of the coolness on our feet. A fan, two fans, and a radio in each room, and, and a day off, once a week, Sundays, Sundays off. He bowed his head, mopped sweat. His grin was like a grimace. The day of rest, eh? Our Lord's Day? Colonel tented his fingers, smiled benignly at us. He waved a hand. All this can be arranged. Your needs are our needs. If you haven't already divined the importance of the project in which you're participating, let me enlighten you. The president, the country, has many enemies. I don't have to tell you that. They are building up their armed forces, constantly building and accelerating, and who can guess what their purposes are? But we must counter them. Do you know your Greeks? Greeks, I echoed, mystified. Homer, Aeschylus, Euripides, they had their heroes, their champions, their Achilleses and Ajaxes, and that is what the president envisions for our country's forces. And not simply individual heroes, but an entire regiment of them, do you see? Like Samson, Fruto put in? The colonel shot him a look. Not the Hebrews, the Greeks. They knew how to win a war. The president must be a very patient man, I offered. It'll take generations. A shrug. Prescient is the word. That is why he is the father of our country. And don't concern yourself. We will breed the issue of your labors, the females, that is, once they reach puberty. And when that issue reaches puberty, we will breed them as well. He fumbled for something on his desk, sifting through the papers there until he held up a single sheet, transparent in the light, glazing the windows. Do you see this? This is a sample requisition form to be sent to the bootmakers of the future. Calling for boots in exactly your size, senor, 18, triple E, just think of it. He settled back in his chair, helmets the size of bird baths, jerseys like tents. No, my friends, the president is a man of foresight, a futurist, you might say, and his vision is all-encompassing. Are you not proud of your country? Do you not want with all your heart to protect and nourish her? Fruto stood there, dazed. I nodded in assent, but it was only for show. Was I seething inside? Not just then, perhaps. We'd already had a pretty fair idea of what was wanted from us, and we had, after all, signed on the dotted line as venal as any other men. But I could see the months to come, years even, stretching out before me like a sentence in the penitentiary. Corpo Carrera pulled open the door behind us, our signal to vacate the room. Our business here was concluded. But just as we reached the door, my legs working autonomously and fructo, heaving for breath and wiping at his massive face with the great sopping field of his handkerchief, the colonel called out to us. Now go and do your duty for the love of your country and of the president. Go to your female volunteers, whose stipends are but half of yours, incidentally, as it should be, and in your throes, think of him. The colonel was as good as his word. Improvements came rapidly, laborers from the village appearing the very next day to reinforce the frames of the cages with four by four posts, enclose them in walls of lath and stucco and lay tile in a handsome herringbone pattern you could stare at for hours. There were tin roofs, each of us got a radio. At night, electric fans stirred the breezes and mosquito netting held the insects at bay. I'd volunteered to help with the work. Let's face it, I was bored to the point of acuity with all that sitting around, but the colonel wouldn't hear of it. No, he said. You must conserve your energy. And here the hint of a smile appeared beneath the dark cantilever of his mustaches. For your president and your country. In the interim, we were bussed to the women's compound, which, as it turned out, lay some three miles to the north of the men's facility, on the banks of a nameless oozing watercourse that bed mosquitoes and stinging flies in the pestilent millions so that we were all of us, men and women alike, scratching furiously the entire time we were there. What distinguished their compound from ours, aside from the increase of insects? Not much. They, too, lived in cages, but they were crammed in, four or five of them, to a cage, and their camp stretched as far as the eye could see. If we were nine, the women numbered in the hundreds, and this, of course, reflected a simple calculus any cattle breeder could have worked out on a single sheet of paper. The women I was put in with that that first night were among the biggest in the camp, selected especially for me. And by big, I don't necessarily mean the heaviest such women were reserved for Fruto and his ilk, but the tallest and broadest, with the longest limbs and thickest bones. These women could have felled forests, collapsed mines, held back the sea just by linking arms. Where the president had found them, I couldn't imagine, not till one of them called me by name. I'd just set down my overnight bag and taken possession of the bed, as uninterested in these women as I'd been in the phalanxes that had trooped in and out of my cage at the men's compound, when one of them broke ranks and came across the dirt floor to me, my name on her lips. She was Magdalena Duarte, and she'd been raised in the city I called home. In a shy voice, she told me she'd often come to the drawbridge to watch me at work when she was just a girl. "'Before my growth spurt,' she said, "'covering her mouth with one hand "'as she laughed at her own joke. "'Later, after we'd coupled by rote "'while the insects whined "'and the other women utterly indifferent, "'unfurled straw mats and lay down to sleep, "'she asked me how I was adjusting "'to my new role in life. "'Did I like it?' "'Anything for the president,' I said. "'Her voice was soft with a scratch in it. "'All work and no play, eh?' "'Something like that. "'But what of you?' Do you like serving your country? I could just make out her features in the light of the guard tower where it fell across the wire mesh of the cage. She glowed a moment, her face like a moon rising over a dim horizon. They move us to a nicer place once we're pregnant, she said. And the stipend is all my parents have to live on in these times. You see, I come from a large family. She caught herself, giggled softly. Of many children, that is, 13 of us. And so when the recruiter came to us, I did my duty. To the president, yes, and to my family as well. I was quiet a moment thinking about that duty when she dropped her voice even lower and whispered, you know, there's another compound, two other compounds. No, I said, I had no idea. Beside us in the dark, the giantesses heaved and blew and let their stertorous snores crash through their dreams for little people. Little? What do you mean little? Forgive me if in that moment I thought of Rosa, my Rosa, my Rosita, and her perfect diminutive feet that were the size of a child's, of her mouth, her lips, the way she would tease me good-naturedly every time I had to bend double and squeeze sideways through a doorway or avoid the chairs in her parents' parlor for fear of splintering them. Not dwarfs, not midgets. The president wants normal stock only but people who, by the grace or whim of God, are very fine and very small. She left the thought hanging there, the darkness seizing me, the mosquitoes raging till the furious cacophony of their wings drove down every other sound in the place. But why? Why would he want little people? I couldn't see anything but her face in the mosaic shadow of the wire, but I could feel her shrug animate the mattress. They say he wants to create a race no more than two feet high and normal in every other way. Intelligent, active, people like cats who can come and go in the night without detection. Spies? Another shift of the mattress. She was nodding now. Our fatherland has many enemies, she said, whispering still as if fearful of being overheard. We must be ready for them. I couldn't sleep that night. Not a wink not after what Magdalena had told me. I kept picturing Rosa in a camp like this one, stepping into a cage where a wiry little man like a human chihuahua lay waiting for her, though I knew it was absurd. Rosa was an innocent. She would never volunteer, never allow herself to be conscripted no matter what pressures were brought to bear. Or would she? Would she feel moved in her heart, in her loins, to serve her country like all these patriotic women laid out snoring in the darkness beside me? The thought seared me, burned in my brain like the perpetual flame illuminating the grave of our president's lamented mother. It was dawn by the time I finally dozed off, my dreams poisoned and my heart constricted as if a noose had been drawn tight around it. After that, I bided my time, and when they moved us back to our new apartments in the men's compound, the very night I broke out again. This time, I went straight for the bus terminal and soon experienced the giddy release of the wheels revolving beneath me as a dark curtain of vegetation lurched past the windows and the striped margins of the road home came clear in the first light of dawn. What I didn't yet appreciate was that after our first abortive attempt at escape, the colonel had issued an alert to all carriers to be on the lookout for any big man seeking passage out of the province. They were waiting for me at the end of the line. Did I go peacefully? No, I didn't. When I saw them there in their black mariah with its chopping blue light, I came down off that bust like a hurricane and laid that vehicle over on its roof till the men it contained came crawling out the windows and I snatched them up two at a time and flung them behind me like so many paper dolls. Sadly. They'd anticipated me here, too, and their chloroform canisters brought me down as swiftly and surely as if I were that king ape in the cinema show we'd all marveled at in simpler times when the images played across the screen like waking dreams and Rosa breathed quietly at my side. I awoke at a damp, subterranean place that smelled of the raw dirt of the floor and the whitewash slathered over the rough stone of the walls. Here was a huge vault of a room, lit dimly by a pair of gray bulbs and wall sconces, a silent place where no one would hear my cries of outrage or pleas for freedom. I was laid out on my back in one of the big industrial strength beds, and my hands and ankles were bound up in chains, and not merely run-of-the-mill chains, but the heavy steel links they used to moor boats in the harbor of my ancestral home by the sea. It took me no more than sixty seconds to intuit where I was, that is, in the basement of the three-story brick building where the Colonel had his offices overlooking the poor huts and open sewers of the village beyond. If I listened carefully, I could hear the sound of footsteps on the floor above and of a chair rolling back and forth on its casters. I tugged at my chains, of course, but they held me fast, secured not to the posts of the bed but to the great Saiba pillars that rose out of the shadows at the four corners of the room to disappear in the ceiling above. Almost as soon as I opened my eyes, a door swung to at the far end of the room, and a woman entered bearing a tray of food. She was of average height and weight, this woman, no Amazon, and I soon discovered it was her task to spoon-feed me as I lay there under the burden of my chains. Release me, I whispered, but she shook her head. Just one hand so I can eat. I feel like an infant lying here. Please, I beg you. She shook her head again and pressed a spoonful of the rich seafood stew we know as Sarsuela to my lips. If I'd I'd had any notion of refusing it, of going on a hunger strike in protest of the way I was being treated, mistreated, the scent and taste of that sarsuela drove it away. You can't begin to imagine what it takes to fuel the cells of this body that entraps me. I ate, ate hungrily and gladly. And then the women started coming to me, three a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, the big women, the giantesses, lowering themselves over me as I lay chained and helpless beneath them. Did I want to perform the act? No, but I was devoured by lust, perpetually aroused, no matter that I was rebelling inside or that I found the women gross and the task odious. They must have been putting something in my food, one of the coarse brown powders easily attainable at any Chinese herbalist shop, the ground horn of the rhinoceros or the friable bones of the tiger infused in alcohol. The women came. I stared at the ceiling. My rage grew. It must have been the third or fourth day when the colonel appeared. He was seated in a wicker chair drawn up to my bed as I awakened one afternoon from a bludgeoning dream and he began lecturing me without preliminary. You may be interested to know, he said, that you've obtained excellent results, superior, the best of your cadre. Release me, I said, my voice tense and caught deep in my throat. He was studying a notepad. It took a minute to smooth the top sheet with his fingers. Some seventy-six percent of the women you've, he broke off searching for the right phrase, been with." have been impregnated congratulations if you release me I promise I swear on my mother's soul that I will do my duty without complaint without he held up a hand speaking of your mother she's doing very well for herself better than she's ever done in her life thanks to the stipend you're providing she appreciates your service as does the president here he leaned in close to me and I saw that a small glittering object was dangling by a ribbon from his right hand a medal such as the military doles out to its heroes. And the next moment, I felt the pressure of his fingers as he pinned it to the breast of my shirt. You'll be released in good time, he said, so that you can go back to the compound where you'll be more comfortable. But we all feel that for the present, given your, what shall we say, recalcitrance, not to mention dereliction of duty, you'll be better off here. Really, it's for your own good. And the president's too, that goes without saying. Later. In my boredom and the solitude that ground me down till my consciousness floated free, Rosa, Rosa, where are you? I shifted my neck and forced my head as far back against the pillow as it would go so that I was able to squint down the vast slope of my chest and get a look at the medal the president had devised as a token of his gratitude. Dangling from the ribbon was a figure cast in metal, either gold or brass, I never did discover which. It took me a moment, squinting as I say, to see what it represented. A bull rampant, with a thin golden puff of steam spewing from his nostrils. That was it. That was the end. I didn't care what became of me after that, but I knew then that I hadn't been born on this earth to serve anybody, let alone the president, that I didn't love him, didn't even know him, and that the rage building in me beat by beat was a force no man could contain, not even a giant. I waited till the mute who served me had left with the remains of the evening meal, and the last giantess had done with me and waddled out the door. And then I went deep inside myself, working like a Hindu faker through every cell of my body from my smallest toes to the truncheons of my legs and my torso that was like a bucket of iron and on up to my shoulders, my biceps and forearms, and down into the reservoirs of my fingers one digit at a time. Then I began worrying the chain that bound my right arm, thrusting and jerking back again over and over through a thousand repetitions till finally it gave way and the arm was free. After that, it was easy. I came up off the bed, chains rattling loose around me telling tales, and if the guard who must have been watching through a hidden peephole came hurtling into the room, I barely noticed. I could have gone through the door and taken the guard with me, but I didn't. No, I just leaned into the nearest pillar and shoved to the whole edifice began to quake and quake again. That was six months ago. I wasn't blinded. No one cut my hair. And when the building came down around me, inferior construction, the termites would have got to it if I hadn't. I found a pocket of air trapped beneath a beam and was spared. I dug my own way out, and if the authorities presumed I was buried beneath the rubble along with the colonel and his functionaries and the great glistening oil portrait of the president, I wasn't about to disabuse them. This time I avoided public transport, making my way home in the depths of a freight car designed to carry livestock from one place to another. Rosa and I escaped to the high fractured plains caught fast in the mountains that separate our country from that of our enemies to the south, where we are living now as man and wife in a village populated by Indians whose teeth are eroded by the leaves they chew to give them energy in the high altitudes where they must scrape a poor living from the earth. I earn my own keep here through main strength as I always have, hauling loads up and down the stony trails that vanish around each bend and drop off thousands of feet to the distant featureless land below. Am I a beast of burden? Yes. but well, I'm nobody's beast but my own. And Rosa's. Rosa is pregnant now, incidentally. And if we're lucky, she'll bear our first son come spring. And if we're even luckier, he'll be neither a giant nor a dwarf, but something in between. As for me, I try to keep my head down and avoid attracting notice. But inevitably, they'll find me. I know that. How could anybody, let alone a man like me, expect to blend in in a land where the people are so very very small. Thank you. Thank you, you're so great, and uh, you're also physically beautiful too. And you know, as a special treat, I think I'm going to read this entire novel now to you, (laughs) every word of it, and tomorrow's LA Times, what do you think? Um, uh, if we have uh, five minutes we could take some questions or uh, yes or no? Yeah, yeah okay. Absolutely. Okay, so Q&A folks, yes?
0: So since you find your stories through newspapers and things like that, so what sparked you to do this story? What was the...?
2: What sparked me to do this story? Um, a diseased childhood. <laughs>
0: um,
2: I, well, I don't know exactly, Do um, you know I'm very interested in uh, in invasive species, in in ecology, and all of that. I read a lot of things about that. And I suppose this is a way of addressing some of that, you know, in terms of eugenics, for instance, and breeding and so on. Um, Of course, now we don't have to bother with this sort of thing. We've got genetic manipulation. And in another generation, nobody will be real anymore. You know, look at how parents fight to the death to get their kid into such and such a school. Imagine once they can simply line up the, the pairs of genes. It wouldn't be so far fetched to have people this big, you know? It's coming. It's coming. And my plan of dealing with all this is I'm just going to die. That's so all I'm going to deal with it. So, other questions? Yeah, again. I thought
0: of eugenics because I like the way you did it in the 30s because that's when eugenics was really taking hold of them. Exactly. And um, was this a, a little tie-in for World War II was supposed to erupt or things like that? <coughs> but especially South America, because eventually the eugenics stuff is about to transfer itself from Europe to South America around that time anyway. So was that
2: part of Yes, that? yeah, she's exactly right. She gave us a little history lesson about eugenics uh, pre-World War II. Uh, she didn't mention the Nazis, but of course they figure in this. And uh, the, uh, just uh, there was an article today or something on the TV about it while I was in my hotel room about uh, uh, the history of eugenics here in California in the 30s uh, in sterilizing people and that uh, someone had written a book about it and uh, um, Herr Adolf actually uh, enjoyed this book. And so as you say, uh, uh, Sal, America was also, because of its dictatorships and so on, um, prone to this sort of thing. And um, all I have to do is have an idea and fly with it. Uh, yes, sir, you had a, a comment or a question.
0: When I read this in the New Yorker, <coughs> after a couple months here, I guess
2: it was just last month. Yeah, uh, last month, yeah. I couldn't help but remember your novels uh, on McKinsey and on Frank Lloyd Wright and the, for
0: lack of a better term, the, the perhaps kinky sexual uh, overtones of those stories, and, and here and wondered if there was a pattern.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he's talking about uh, the Kinsey book, the, uh, the, uh, the Kellogg book, and the kinkiness of that, and the kinkiness of the story. Is there a pattern? Well, I suppose so. I, um, you know, when you begin to write, uh, or to create any art, you don't uh, really know what your themes are. Um, I see how everything is linked, but I can only see that in retrospect and Sure, I think part of the fun of a story like this is that what 's happening is utterly outrageous, but it 's told in a sort of reasonable way, and uh, you know it 's um, not overtly sexual, and yet the joke is that you 've kind of envisioned how crazy this is you know I mean who doesn 't want to be chained when three hundred pound women are uh, climbing atop you? I mean speaking from the male point of view. <laughs> Uh, a couple more yeah Jeff
0: uh, have you um, have you checked out the George Saunders piece Escape from Spiderhead
2: no I haven't seen it yet where, where is it um,
0: it's, it was in the New Yorker maybe about a year ago but um, it has a really a very similar um, idea about uh, sort of sexual pairings and captivity,
2: but it's a very futuristic sort of rendering of that idea. So. Well, so uh, Jeff was telling us about a, a story that was in The New Yorker by George Saunders, who is a wonderful and imaginative and great writer um, about a similar thing of, of, of forced pairings, but it takes place in the future. Yeah. Aha. Well, so I've gone back in the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the others? I have another
0: question yeah it's interesting you have this interesting pairing about forced pairings because it starts early where something simple as pairing with uh, plants and then he went to, you know, talk about the president, he did this a lot of um, animal husbandry, and he just did a natural progression, the ideal, I mean, and then you're talking about the channel Islands, the ideal of reformatting nature the way we see it, but at the same time, it takes out a certain you know, sex stops being sexy. You know, it stops being sexy. Sorry, right. You know, I can see why he ran because it's not sexy anymore. It becomes a a chore. Uh, like he's, you know, he's. You know, he saw the bull. You know. The, exactly. You know. So my question to you is that is this how you see how we are going as a society, or just as your your little protests, or about how this is working, because technically, all they need is leave a couple of years later and and and, and start eating steroid beef and get the giants eventually. But the idea about that.
2: Yeah, steroids. Trend. Look at the steroid scandal. Of course. Yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying. Would you come on tour with me? <laughs> I mean, she's interpreting it exactly and, and perfectly. Yes, of course. I was
0: is that what you're like, feeling out when you start seeing
2: Yes, of course. And I love uh, how you compare it to, you know, talking about the invasive species in the Channel Islands in this book. Um, it's a kind of manipulation. And, you know, the, the secret that we're not revealing is we are animals. You know, we're the third chimpanzee, according to Jared Diamond. Um, uh, and uh, we try to uh, pretend that we're not, and we try to manipulate Nature, but it bites us back. You know, um, one of the ironies of this book and what I was telling about here is um, how impossible it is to try to create an environment when you add or remove something. Uh, according to the principles of island biogeography, you don't know what kind of cascading effects there could be. Yes.
0: Could you share with us some of your favorite authors' short story, novel, or
1: whatever you're reading pleasure?
2: Well, um, as, as, as Jeff will know, uh, I did a, a, a sort of a textbook for our classes called Double Text a few years ago. And I've got 30 authors with two stories of each um, of all different sorts and types of writing just to get everybody excited. So if you look at that, you'll find 30 of them whom I think are pretty great in a lot of ways. Um, a tip for a book I just read that just completely blew me away is uh, um, Stone Arabia by Dana Spiata. If you don't know it, it's uh, it's quite beautiful and brilliant and wonderful. And I also read, of course, a lot of uh, ecology and uh, eco-history, like um, uh, the Charles C. Mann books, 1491 and 1493. You know, what What was the world like before Columbus, what was it like after Columbus? Great, great stuff, boy. A lot to think about, and who knows? I might even come up with some twisted stories from the information there. So let's have two more questions, and we'll hang it up. Yeah.
0: What
1: determines for you
2: whether an idea begets a short story or a novel? Um, everyone hear that? How do I decide whether it's going to be a short story or a novel? Um, I've never had the, uh, the experience of starting a story and thinking, oh boy, this is a novel and going on, or vice versa. Never, it's never happened to me. And I think it's because I write, yeah, I write both things. equally. And, you know, Most people are either one or the other, the stories or novels, you know, and I'm pretty much equally doing them. Um, so I, I guess I, I'm viewing something in a smaller context for stories, like this one. You know, this is just a, a, a short story. Um, I wouldn't want to extend this over the course of a novel uh, onto other things. I um, say there's one, one example. I'd, Uh, I wanted to write about identity theft a few years ago, it fascinates me, and I thought initially I would write a story about it, but I realized very soon, before I started writing the story, but just reading about this material that I wouldn't want to write a whole novel about it, so I did Talk Talk. But that's the exception. Almost always I'm thinking in terms of stories, and I'm in a story phase now because I finished the novel San Miguel, as I said, which comes out next uh, fall, September, um, about... San Miguel Island, just an historical piece about that, that I discovered while I was doing this research. And then the following fall is T.C. Boyle Stories 2, and this story is the first of the second round of stories that will be in this new volume included in that volume. So that's what I'm doing now. So let's have a final question from somebody here.
0: How do you pronounce the middle name?
2: Uh, Carragason. It's Caragason, but uh, my English editors are the first ones, and this has got to be 20 years ago, to edit my name, because it fits better on the cover, and that's fine with me, although on TCBall.com, for years and years, there's been a Restore Caragason campaign going on.
0: <laughs> All right,
2: thank you very much, folks. Appreciate it. Thank you.